Well, good morning, church. It is so good to, to gather together. And can I just say welcome again. It's so good to have you here, part of our service. And a special welcome to everyone joining us online. So fantastic that you can be a part of our service here today as well at True North. Now, if uh, you're new here or haven't been around for the last couple of weeks, we've been tracking a series that we've been calling Unbreakable. And we've been following the life of David through First Samuel. And really up to this point, really looking at some of the highlight moments. We began with his anointing by the prophet Samuel. Samuel, leading into his very public victory over the giant Goliath. And then last week, stopping in on David deep in the caves in this moment of, of private uh, and a private display of personal character. And we've seen all these incredible moments in the life of David. Now, as we head into this week, uh, I've just got to think the way I'm going to approach it is we're just going to rip the band-aid right off. And we're going to go to a moment of massive failure in the life of David. Now, if you're not familiar with David's arc and his story, this is going to become uh, a horrifying surprise to you as you encounter this moment in the story that we get to in 2 Samuel, where up until this point, David's been a hero. He's been a hero of faith, of boldness, of courage, of character, and integrity. But we're also going to see that, that David, he's a human being and has a very human story throughout the Scripture. And we're going to come to a point in his life of massive moral failure. Now, the reality is all of us are going to experience failure time and time again, in different contexts, in varying degrees, and it's a part of the human experience. But as we get to our Unbreakable series this morning, holding on to this idea of how can I, acknowledging my own personal brokenness and the brokenness that I walk through, how can I hold on to unbreakable faith in who God is? And as we get to this moment in the life of David, we're going to head into this big idea together, faith through failure. Because one of the significant off-ramps in the life of faith can be an inability to process failure well. But the truth of the heart of God is that God is with us and for us in and through our failures. So as we get to the life of David, we get to, uh, I guess, through chapter 11 and chapter 12, we get to experience the full weight of his failure and almost do like a, a post-mortem on the failure. My, my wife and I, we're kind of into procedural crime shows. Any fans of procedural crime? you know, the BBC, whatever it is that, that you align with. And, and I love this idea of, of seeing a crime, seeing something wrong that's gone down, and then working out what were the things that led to this moment occurring. And as we follow this moment in the life of David, we're going to look at two things, pre-failure, the things that led David to this moment, and post-failure, the way that David processed the mistake. So we're going to get into that together this morning. And my, my hope is that, that we'd be encouraged by Scripture when it comes to this idea of cultivating a life of faith that can actually sustain us through moments of failure, not having a life of faith that's challenged by failure. Because I believe that faith in Jesus is about taking hold of grace that helps us to navigate through failure. That's the grace of Jesus. Can anyone say amen to that? Anyone agree with that? Anyone online, you want to agree with me? Give me a fist bump over the chat. We'd love to see that. Personally, I'm not going to see it right now, but others online will. They're going to love it. And uh, so we're going to get into that this morning. So we're going to go straight to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to read verse 1 to 2a. And here's what it says. 
in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Now, David was living at a time in the moment in the the ancient Middle East that was really characterized by just constant tussles between the ancient nations for, for power, control for land. And there was, really, it was a time of constant warfare. And this was the time when the kings would go off and lead their armies into battle. Now, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the king's men go out. David sends Joab in his place. And David remains idle in Jerusalem. Then one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, here's what happens in the life of David, and I, I want to jump ahead in the story. I don't normally like to do this, but, but again, I want to rip the Band-Aid off and just get real about where David heads. The, the failure in David's life, if you're not familiar with the story, is that he ends up taking advantage of a woman named Bathsheba, commits adultery, and then kills her husband in an, in an attempt to cover the whole thing up. So this is like massive moral failure. And for me, as I reflect and read this passage of Scripture, I kind of read this moment in the life of David almost as an exaggeration of the kind of things that we would typically wrestle with when it comes to our own morality. And that's how I engage with this text, and perhaps that's helpful for you as you get into it as well. But here we have David. And as I, as I read the opening parts of this verse, and I think about that kind of the pre-failure phase of David leading up to this massive moment of failure, the first thing that shines out to me is that David is in the wrong place. His positioning is off. Really where David should have been was with the men on the battlefield. He should have been on the fields, camped in the tents, because the king at that time, as you know if you've been journeying with the series the last couple of weeks, the the king originally in King Saul, he was elected and chosen, and God's people asked for the king to be their warrior protector. So in a time of war, the king would lead the armies, he would champion the cause of the armies. But David neglects that responsibility. He gives the men to Joab, and he remains, remains idle in Jerusalem. And you might rem- remember the old saying, idle hands are the devil's playthings. Anyone remember that one? <laughs> Not sure what decade that originated. I'm going to guess like 20s or earlier. Don't know why I'm gesturing to you. Sorry about that. No offense on your... Um, just a distinguished gentleman on the front row for those joining us online. Um, but, but David's positioning is off here. He should have been in one place, but he finds himself in another place. And then once more, we see in the second part of this verse that David gets out of his bed. It's the middle of the night. Number two, where should he have been? In his bed, likely with his wife. He leaves his bed and he goes up to the roof of the palace. His positioning is all off. Now, when it comes to this idea of considering moral failure in our own lives, the thing that I want to open myself up to is say, hey, I am not immune to making mistakes. I am not immune to making bad decisions. And I think that's the position that we all need to embrace, the somewhat uncomfortable position. And I think there's something we can learn from the life of David here as we look at, I guess, the anatomy of a failure in his life, that it begins with being in the wrong position. Now, there's a couple of different ways that I think I can get myself into the wrong position. And I'm going to frame this for for followers of Jesus here this morning. If you're still exploring faith, still working out faith, there's going to be a lot of great things in this for you. But if you're a disciple here this morning, 
If you're a disciple and you decided that the cause of your life is to follow Jesus, that's what being a disciple is, that if you're following Jesus, you can actually get out of position by no longer following Jesus. And for David, following God in his life meant representing Israel as their king, and he fails to do that. So he lets go of a responsibility that he has, remains in Jerusalem, and gets himself into the wrong position. Now, there's a number of ways that that we can do this. I think the most fundamental one, if we think, okay, how am I positioned as a follower of Jesus? One of the great questions to ask yourself is, who are the people that form the inner circle of your life? Who are the friends? Who are the people in your workplace? Who are the associates? Who are the people that form your inner circle? Because that inner circle will be influencing your life in a certain way. How are those key relationships positioning you as a follower of Jesus? I think it's a great thing to reflect on because it's those kind of voices and the, I guess the, the cultural norms of that small group of people will position your life in a certain way. You know, some other things to consider. What kind of voices are you listening to? What kind of music are you listening to? What kind of things are you looking at on, on YouTube? Or, or what kind of voices are you allowing to bring shape to your life? How are they affecting your position as a follower of Christ? What kind of things are you watching? What kind of movies? What kind of TV shows? What are the things that are positioning you as a follower of Jesus? You know, when we gather together as a church and we praise the name of Jesus, that positions us in a certain way to follow our Jesus. That's why I love church. That's why I love gathering for church. That's why I love being a pastor. It's because I understand that when we follow Christ together, we position our life in a certain way. So one of the things we need to be mindful of, if we want to protect our life from, I guess, less exaggerated examples as King David here, but if we want to protect our lives from those kind of failures, we need to think, okay, how am I positioned? Who are the people that are influencing me? How am I positioned as a follower of Jesus? Because here's the thing. When you're in the wrong position, you leave yourself open to experiencing the wrong kind of moments. Maybe you've experienced this in your life once or twice or once upon a time. That when we're in the wrong position, we leave ourselves open to experience the wrong moments. And as we continue in the scripture, this is exactly what happens in the life of David. It says, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I'm going to call this part of the scripture the moment before the moment. There's a moment of significant failure coming. Now, this is the moment before the moment. Now, this is how this scene could have gone. David, he's remained in Jerusalem. He's obviously processing some different things, a number of reasons perhaps why he's there. He leaves his bed. He goes up onto the rooftop, climbs up the stairs. You can imagine an ancient uh, Middle Eastern kind of palace. The roofs are open, all the kind of properties around. Again, open roofs like big balconies. He climbs up onto the roof. He walks up to the roof. He lifts up his eyes. Well, naked lady, I got to go back downstairs. That's one way this story could have gone. And if that's the way it went, we would have never read about it in here. So David's positioning allows him to experience this moment. And then because David is out of position within his heart, he reacts to the moment in a certain way. And he entertains the moment. He lingers in the moment. 
Now, if there was some circumstance, if David was out on the battlefield with his men and they camped at night and he experienced a moment like this, I believe he would have reacted to it completely differently because in the right position, you respond to those moments in the right way. But in the wrong position, you respond to those moments in the wrong way. Now, obviously, the example in Scripture this morning has a a very specific tone and and example. But for in our lives, this is going to play out in all kinds of different ways. But when we allow ourselves to slip into the wrong position as followers of Jesus, we open ourselves to experience these kind of moments. And sometimes we'll begin entertaining those moments. And for David, he might have began even justifying it in his mind. It's okay. I'll just find out a little bit more about her. It's not so bad if I just find out her name or who she is or, or what's going on there. But it was the moment before the moment that led to disaster. You know, I think one of the great things that we can do is have an honest internal conversation and say, what are the moments before the moment for me? Now, here's something that, I, that was helpful for me as I was processing this in my mind. If you want to find what those things are for you, for some of you, it might be similar things to David. For a lot of you, it's going to be different arenas of character and within your soul. But here's something you can look for. What exists in my life as some kind of bad behavior that I'm justifying somehow? Is there anything in your life any small broken behavior that somehow you're justifying in your own mind and in your own heart. Because if there is something like that, it might be your moment before the moment. You know, as I was preparing this message, I was sitting down with uh, two of our pastors here, John and Riley, incredible, incredible pastors, absolute larrikins, and preparing a message with them with quite an experience. But at one moment, as we were reflecting on this passage and just allowing the, the Scripture to speak to us, One of the questions I asked was, hey, what's the most dishonest thing you're doing in your life right now? And I compiled a list, and I'm just going to share John and Riley's Riley's list. So first, first, number one dishonest thing for John was, um, no, I didn't do that. (laughs) But I will share mine. I will share mine. And as I reflected on that, I said, what's the most dishonest thing that I'm doing right now? Because that could be my moment before the moment. And I reflected on it. And, and uh, the thing that came to my mind, uh, so in my household, we, we do a lot of recycling, which I love. And it's something that, that I've been growing in, being a good steward of our, of our world and recycling and engaging with good practices around the home. And my wife is a champion in this space, and, and I appreciate for that. appreciate her for that. And we, we have a composting system at home. Does anyone have a composting system at home? Good, good. Does anyone have a spouse or parent that has a composting system at home and you resent it a little bit? Uh, 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 hello. <laughs> it's one little hand. Uh, now, now I'm, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm growing as a, as a recycling person and I value it so much. But, but here's, here's something that's true about me as I reflected on this whole process. That when my wife is home, there exists in me a certain standard of recycling that's up here. And when my wife's not at home, the standard of recycling drops a little. I still do the, the baseline stuff, but, but engaging with the composting system in particular is something that slips off when my wife's not home. And for me, here's the most simple picture of that. I eat a banana, I have a banana peel. I can either put it into phase one of the composting system, I'm making it sound more elaborate than it is, it's fairly simple, or I can just throw it in the bin, which is definitely easier. 
And I noticed something about myself. When my wife's home, I do it properly, upon what we've decided in our home. When she's not home, I don't do it properly. And I've been saying in my mind, it's not a big deal. It's just a banana peel. It doesn't matter if I compost it or if I put it in the bin. Now, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm justifying a behavior. So it's just a banana peel. It, it doesn't matter. I do, you know, I do the plastics. I do the cardboard right. You know, I wash the old sausage container and get that into the recycling properly. It's just a banana peel. And so I'd been subconsciously justifying in my mind as I was doing it. Now, here's the problem. And here's why I think this was a moment before the moment for me. The real critical issue here was that I was being dishonest. So I did not want my wife to know what I was doing with that banana peel. Small issue, massive potential problem, because I was being dishonest. Now, if I'd had an open conversation with her and said, Tash, I just can't commit to this. When I have a banana, I'm not going to compost it. That would be a different issue, and I'm sure that would lead to a, a nice conversation. And she would continue to help me be a better person. <laughs> but here was the problem. I wasn't doing that. I was just, when she wasn't there, when she wasn't looking, when I thought no one could see, I was doing one particular thing with this banana peel. Now, if I allowed that to go unchallenged, what might be the next thing that I might start justifying? Maybe something in the arena of finances. She doesn't need to know about that purchase that, that's fine. Or, or maybe I'll tell her something costs this much and really it costs that much. And it could go on and on and on. And there's a pattern of dishonesty that's now inserted into my marriage. So what I did after having that conversation with John and Riley, I went home and I said, Tash, today I had a conversation with John and Riley about the most dishonest things we're doing right now. And she's like, uh-oh. <laughs> I said, I've been dishonest with my treatment of the banana peels. <laughs> when you're not around, I don't recycle to the same standard. And she kind of gave me this look, which was like, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. <laughs> and, and we move forward. Now, now, we can laugh about that whole moment. And it's good to laugh about that whole moment. But also recognize the potential for that little moment to grow into becoming more significant deception within my marriage is real. Who would agree with that? I certainly agree with that, and I'm the one doing it. <laughs> the potential for that to become bigger than it was and show up in other places is potentially devastating. And that's why I went home and, and talked, to her, talked to her about it. He's got to think, what are those moments that we're allowing, that we're entertaining, that we can justify? Hey, it's just a banana peel. It's no big deal. Here's a question for you to reflect on, is what's your banana peel? What's that little moment? Now everyone's going to go home, <laughs> hold a banana and start freaking out. <laughs> At that moment, remember the grace of Jesus that is sufficient for each one of us. We need to understand that those moments matter. And here's the thing. When we get ourselves in the right position, we're following step after step after Jesus. We can see that banana peel for what it is. And we can say to our wives, I've been recycling dishonestly. It could be specific individuals this morning. You need to have that exact confession. If it is, do that today or whatever it might be. But David doesn't do that. He entertains it. He lingers in the moment. And the next step is just taking advantage of Bathsheba. It's adultery. And it's just full-blown tyrannical king vibes is what David becomes after sitting in this moment, allowing himself to remain in the wrong position, entertaining the wrong moment. And now 
he's involved with this incredible failure within his own character, compromising the crown of Israel, God's people, just, just, just not good. Not a good decision, not a good space. So now we hit the moment of failure, and now post-failure and processing failure is the next conversation that we're going to have coming out of this passage of Scripture. Now, here's what David does. And in fact, I'm just going to summarize for us. 1 Samuel chapter 11, 6 through 17. It's a, a long stretch of narrative which captures basically three things that David does. And his key reaction of the heart to his failure is the cover-up. Is the cover-up. So his immediate reaction to this failure, he knows in his heart that what he's done is wrong. He knows that he needs to cover this up. He's committed adultery. And I think I, I might have missed the narrative moment, but Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And, and he's just in this place where his character could be exposed for what it is. And he decides that the cover-up is the best way to go moving forward. So step one of his cover-up, and this begins in verse 6, goes all the way through to verse 17. He gets Uriah the Hittite to come back from the battlefields, to come home to Jerusalem. And his plan is that when Uriah comes home, he'd spend time at home, be with his wife, and in so doing, cover up the pregnancy of, between David and Bathsheba. But it turns out Uriah has character deeply ingrained in his heart. And he says, ah, men are camped in the fields and fighting during the day. I will not go home and relax in my house and be with my wife. And he sleeps in the barracks. And then David, realizing the first step of his cover-up doesn't work, he goes, okay, Let's go for cover-up attempt number two. And the next night, he invites Uriah to his home, and he wines and dines him with the expressed intention of getting him drunk with the hope that it will soften his integrity and that he'd go home, be with his wife, and hopefully David could cover up this whole affair. But again, Uriah, filled with character and integrity, David's reported to David that he's asleep on the mat in the barracks once again. He doesn't go home. And now David thoroughly committed to covering this whole thing up, escalates his failure in a powerful way. And he decides that he's going to have Uriah killed. So he sends a letter to Joab, the commander of the armies, and he says, take Uriah to the front lines where the fighting is at its absolute fiercest. Push the attack and then withdraw so Uriah will be exposed and defeated by the enemy. Just maniacal tyrant at this point. And he's successful. Uriah's killed. Now, here's what happens. As David seeks this cover-up, the pain caused by his initial failure is compounded dramatically. At this point, he's taken advantage of Bathsheba. He's misused his royal position. He's done something horrible. And now in the cover-up, he's made that worse. He's killed her husband. In the attempt, several other Israelite soldiers are murdered because of this strategy and battle to have Uriah killed. He's made his righteous commander, Joab, an accessory to murder and, put, and just brought a brokenness and a wedge in between them and his leadership as king. And as I said earlier, he's completely compromised the holiness of the crown of Israel. In, he, in who he is as a king to represent God in his holiness, David has just let it all go. So in the cover-up, David causes far more pain than he ever inflicted through the initial mistake. 
Now, when it comes to processing failure in our lives, again, we can receive this story from David as an extreme exaggeration of what this kind of process of to failure can bring. But in smaller ways, in less intense ways, when we process failure bad, it will bring certain things into our life and into our heart. So whether it be the smallest thing or a really big thing, when we cover something up, I think there's something we tell ourselves. I'm going to cover this up to protect someone else from pain. You go back to my banana peel. I'm just going to throw this in the bin, not let Tash know about it, because that's going to cause her emotional pain, so I just want to do that. Now, that's, that's rubbish, Phil. The only person you're protecting from pain is yourself, because you don't want to get found out. Now, that's what a cover-up is. Now, there's a, there's a picture here that, that, that I've, I've, I've spoken about since I was a, was a kid in ministry, and I just love it so much. And some of you, you might have heard me reflect on this picture before. But, but the idea that within our souls, it's, we find something a little bit like a fridge. Sometimes call, call it the spirit fridge. Some of you may have heard me talk about this briefly before. But you know when in your fridge you've got some rotten item Right at the back of the fridge, hidden behind a tub of yogurt, a punnet of strawberries, and, you know, what else do you have in your fridge? Avocados. Do they go in the fridge? Avocados. So you've got a range of things, and then right at the back, something's going bad. And you know when you get to that moment when the smell starts to impact everything that's in the fridge? Anyone experience that? You're like, I've got to clean the fridge. Some of you are like, no, I look after my fridge, Phil. You're a monster. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then you get that smell, and you know something's off there. You can't see it. You don't know what it is, but it's impacting everything that's going on in the fridge. Now, in the place of the soul, when we attempt to cover up those things, thinking, I've just got to protect people from this, they always see it. They don't always see what it is, but they see the impact of that thing in the basement of our hearts that we're covering away that we're not dealing with. And here's the thing, when we go back to positioning, there's something of a cycle here, that when we try to follow Jesus while covering something up, it becomes really hard to follow step by step. There's another way. And the problem for David was that, is that there was such a massive gap between his failure and when he begins processing his failure. Now, what happens at least nine months later David thinks he's covered it up. Uriah's been killed. Bathsheba is now David's wife. And, and he feels and thinks that, that this is over. But God, God saw it all. And God wasn't pleased with the actions that David had taken as his king. And so he sends the prophet Nathan in chapter 12 and reveals to Nathan what David's done. And Nathan goes and confronts David. And then David responds finally with a heart of confession. And I want to give David some credit here, because he could have continued the cover-up at this point. He could have killed Nathan. He could have just kept escalating. But he finally gets to the point of confession, and he says, I have sinned against God. And Nathan replies to him and says, God has forgiven your sin. He's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And David experiences the grace of God even through this catastrophic moral failure. But there would be a consequence. And the young child born to David through Bathsheba grew ill and didn't survive. And David mourns for the loss of the child. He mourns now for the poor decision that he's made, for, for the, the disgrace that he's brought to God's people Israel, for his failings as the king. And he's in sackcloth and ashes. And then 
eventually, here's how David responds. And I want to take you to the next verse. I think we've got this. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now, here's what I can take away from David through this whole experience of just complete broken decision-making, complete brokenness. He navigates through it to get to the point where he goes to the temple of the Lord, the house of God, and he worships the Father. So David, through this entire thing, this entire process, his faith is unbroken. He brings incredible brokenness into his life. He causes incredible brokenness, but he receives the grace of God. He receives the consequence of his decisions, and he worships God. He confesses. He processes his failure. Now, the biggest thing that I want to learn from this passage of Scripture and the experience of David is to keep the gap short between a moral failure and processing that failure well. I think David's biggest problem here is that he refuses to deal with it for such a long period of time, and the impact of his failure gets worse and worse and impacts more and more and causes more and more pain. You know, in our smaller experiences of brokenness in our life, the longer we leave things hanging, the longer we attempt to cover these kind of arenas of our heart and soul over, the more damage it's going to cause, whether it's simply inhibiting us in our desire to follow Jesus, if it's simply inhibiting us in our desire to have healthy, functioning, growing relationships with the people in our world, to keep short accounts with God between our failings and His grace, because God's grace is always sufficient. You know, one of the things that, that I love so much and, and treasure about David's experience through this, despite, I guess, the, the anger I feel towards him at certain points of this story as a reader of God's Word, that he gets to a point of renewal and restoration. And in response to God's grace, in response to the consequences that he experiences, David writes a psalm. Some commentators think that, that in the temple of the Lord that David went to to worship, he actually right there wrote Psalm 51 as a prayer of worship and confession and renewal in the presence of God. I invite the, the team to come and join me. And what I want to do this morning in finishing, in a few moments, I want to read the verses of that psalm over you because it's how David processes his failure in this scenario. Now, for you here this morning, there might be something in your heart, whether big or small, you're like, that's something I need to deal with this morning. That's something I need to process well this morning. That's something that I want to bring before God in confession. I'm going to stop covering this thing up and say, God, would you shine your light on this failing in me? And to know that His grace, it's actually real. You know where renewal comes from? When shame meets grace. That's renewal. The problem is when we cover up our shame, we shield ourselves from the grace of God because we don't want Him to see it. But when we can trust Him and say, okay, God, here's what's going on. Then grace meets shame 
shame becomes renewal, restoration, and turns back into worship within our hearts. That's how we have faith through failure. So if there's something in your heart that you need to bring before God, I want you to receive these words from Psalm 51 as a prayer of blessing this morning. Or you might be in a place where nothing really registers in your mind. Then I want to encourage you to be challenged by the first half of this story. To think about positioning. To think about the way in which you're following Jesus. To think about the voices of influence in your life. To think about some of those moments before the moment. To say, God, would you guard my heart through these things? Would you help me to react like a follower of Jesus would react in those moments of trial or temptation? But either way, I want to bless you this morning with these words from Psalm 51. And in fact, I want to invite you to stand together and receive... Receive receive these words from Psalm 51 as both a prayer for you to pray towards God if there's something that you need to process. This is Scripture giving us language to process failings so that shame might turn into renewal through grace. It's what Jesus died for. It's what we all receive. Maybe you'd like to close your eyes. If in particular this is a moment resonating with you, you might want to open your hands before God to receive this prayer of restoration and renewal over your life. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak? Would you do a work of renewal within us? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Jesus, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, restore the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Holy Spirit, I thank you that your presence is here, Lord, all over this place in living rooms and homes of people watching online. And God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do a renewing work within us. God, you have cleansed us. You have restored us. You have renewed us. Now, God, give us the strength and courage to have the conversations that we need to have coming out of this moment today. 
God, I pray that you would bring renewal, that you would bring new peace. Jesus, restore to us the joy of our salvation, the joy of your salvation, that we might follow you in fullness of heart. God, I thank you that no brokenness in me will ever separate me from you. And God, I pray that I would never allow my brokenness, that we would never allow our brokenness to separate us from you. Because Jesus, that's why you came. That's why you died. That's why you restored. Jesus, could we receive your grace in overflowing measures this morning? Help us to be the men and women that you have called us to be. Help us to be the teenagers and children that you have called us to be. Jesus, we want to follow you in spirit and truth. We acknowledge our failures. And God, we bring our failures to your cross and acknowledge your grace. We praise you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. The team's going to lead us in a time of responding to God in worship. I just want to invite you to continue to pursue God, to take joy in the salvation you have in Him and through Him. Let's worship together.